All right, 2 Samuel, chapter 6, verse 1. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. This is a big undertaking. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts. Now, this by the name is not in every translation. Some translations read, whose name is called the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. Verse 3. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was... On the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the son of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Has everyone figured out that the house of Abinadab is on a hill? Accompanying the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood and on harps and on stringed instruments, on tambourines and on sistrums and on cymbals. In other words, they brought the worship team. The worship team came, and why not? When you decide you're going to go after the presence of God, there's no better way than to rejoice your way to the presence of God. And so they're rejoicing their way in the presence of God. Verse 6, And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah, Put out his hand to the ark of God. Now remember, you cannot touch the ark of God. They've been instructed. He put out his hand to the ark of God and took a hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. How many understand that life has potholes? Huh? And even in the presence of God, sometimes you can get shook. How many's ever been shook? Even though you know the Lord's got this, you still got shook a little. All right. Have you ever reacted? out of a knee-jerk moment and done something you wish you hadn't done. Oh, this is the right crowd. Verse 7, then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah. Why? Because there was a command not to do this. And God struck him there for his error, and he died there before the ark of God. Now, how many thinks that was a sobering moment for the worship team? I mean, seriously, I know I'm being a little bit facetious, a little bit ornery, a little bit out there, but think about that. Right in the middle of worship, you got people flopping, hitting the floor, hitting the deck, and it's over. That would be sobering. Look at your neighbor and say, that ain't happening today. All right. I, I could just feel panic across the building. I want to make sure. And David became angry. Because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. Now, how many have ever, in the middle of something, in the middle of serving God, in the middle of doing your best, a pothole comes along, there's a little stumble in your life, and suddenly you're mad at God. Somebody passed that you didn't want to pass, or some, some circumstance went wrong, or some financial failure, or so, and suddenly you're just not so happy with, Lord, with the Lord. You know, a lot of folks aren't honest, but a lot of people 
who don't come to the house of God and don't darken the doors is because somewhere along the line they got offended with God. And of all people in this world, you do not want to get an offense with God. He's the only one who can fix anything else that's going wrong in your life. And so when you're offended with God, you are powerless to change your circumstance. You're going to live a miserable life if you are offended with God. I just thought I'd throw that in. That don't cost you anything. You've done gave in the offering. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. Perez means breakthrough or break in or break out. So what he's really saying here, this is the place where God's anger broke out on Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day. How many of you would be afraid of the Lord if you thought his judgment came in the middle of your worship party? And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? In other words, he's beginning to realize he's done something wrong. He's beginning to realize that in all of my exuberance and all of my joy and all of, all of my zeal, I forgot something. I, I should have studied harder on how to handle the presence of God. Look at this, 10. So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told to King David, saying, now remember, this was three months ago, he put the ark away. So three months have passed now by the time we get to verse 12. Verse 12, now it was told to King David, saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God uh, from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. Now, there's a lot of stuff missing between these two verses. David parked the ark because he was afraid to move it. He didn't know how to move it. He didn't know how to handle the presence of God correctly. He loved God, has loved him, has sang songs to him, has always worshipped him, and he thought that if he just approached God's presence the way he did as a shepherd boy, it would work. Not understanding that he is now a warrior king. And what you do in the wilderness, singing unto God is beautiful, but when you're handling the presence of God, it's something else. I've got everybody going, what? What? Here's what I want you to see here real quickly. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. It's been three months. Finally, a messenger comes and says, wow, you know what? Ever since we parked the ark at Obed-Edom's, that boy's got bling. There's things happening up there. Their cattle are multiplying daily. It's amazing what's going on. He's got more than he's ever had. He is a blessed man. 
He's also not a Jew. And it's like, David's like, mm. you ever had, anyone ever had your possession and you decided, get your hands off my stuff? And he's hearing about the blessing. You see, David's intention is to bring the blessing of the Lord into the nation. And he's hearing about all the blessing that's going on. So David gets motivated to get this thing, this ark moved into the city of David. Look at this, verse 13. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord, wait a minute. So David went and brought up, verse, uh, that's number 12. So David went up and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness, verse 13. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces and then sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. In the past, people get ideas that, that David was in his underwear. David wasn't dancing in his underwear. Let's get that, let's clear that up real quick. He was dancing in a linen ephod. He wasn't in his chonies. He wasn't in his BVDs. The Spanish folks knew what I meant when I said chonies. He wasn't, he wasn't dancing in his fruit of the looms. He was wearing the clothing of a priest. We're going somewhere. Look at your neighbor and say, it's taking him forever. We're going somewhere. And I love, I'm going to back up to verse 14 because this gets under my rib. Then David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. Mm, I can see David dancing now. I have moments when I just have to stop and dance. And sometimes it's the most unopportune moment when the Holy Spirit gets on me. I've done it right downtown on, what is it, at 43rd or 47th Street downtown, Kansas City, in the middle of the plaza. Everybody's being fancy, and a fat man's down there going, Ooh, I love you, Jesus. You are wonderful. I magnify your name. And I quit when the police cars pulled up. <laughs> that didn't happen. I just made that up. <clears throat> so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of a trumpet. Now, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, some say Michael, some, I say McCall. McCall, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Some people don't like your worship. Some people will despise you for how you worship. But are you going to let how someone else views you keep you from what's in your heart before God? Mm. Verse 17, so they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. 
And then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins, so that all the people departed everyone to his house. In other words, after the big celebration, he sent them home with all the party favors to keep the party going in the presence of God. And then David returned to bless his household, and Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him, uh, came out to meet David, and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants, as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, <laughs> therefore, I will play music before the Lord. Verse 22, and I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maid servant of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Why? Because David wouldn't have nothing to do with her. That's a simple one. David's like, you're going to talk like a foolish woman. You're going to act like a foolish woman. You're going to be rebellious in the sight of God. You can live there. Just live there. But just know, I'm not joining myself to you. I'm going to live righteous and holy and pure and humble in the presence of God. Now turn to your neighbor and say, it took forever to read that. So let's move on quickly. Under Saul's leadership, the ark or the presence of God was never pursued. The ark had gotten away from Israel under Eli and had been gone through the whole rulership of Saul. But Saul was so busy being king, he never pursued who made him king in the first place. The, the, the ark evoked fear in the hearts of Israel's enemies. They hated when Israel came to battle because they always brought the ark with them and the ark always gave them the victory. And once the ark was captured by the Philistines and they had it for a season, one of the greatest enemies of Israel. They had the Ark of the Covenant. And they found out real quickly that it was not the most pleasant thing to mess with Israel's God. In fact, the word says that they made offerings and put the Ark on an ox cart and sent it out back to Israel. Those offerings were tumors. I hate to tell you this, but if you break it down in the word, they were hemorrhoids. And I know this is funny, and I, I intend to be funny. Israel's enemies found out 
It's a pain in the butt if you mess with God. <laughs> sorry. But what, not sorry, what they did was they made an apology offering going, here, we understand what these things are, and we're going to send you a bunch of golden ones if you'll turn us loose. And this must be where, where David got the idea that it was acceptable to put the Ark of the Covenant on an ox cart. But that was not the way God's presence was to be handled. God's presence was to be handled upon the shoulders of the priesthood and carried into every situation as a king would be carried into every situation. The Ark of the Covenant was the true king of Israel. David was the under king, the under shepherd, the king who was secondary, the king who ruled the everyday affairs, but God was the king of the nation. Mm, I got to hurry. So the ark now has been brought back and put into a place of safety. It wasn't in danger, but it was set aside because Saul had no passion for it. And how often do we set aside God's presence in our life because we've lost our passion for the presence of God? We've gotten busy and enamored with life and everyday uh, detail that we, we don't just stop. I, I catch myself sometimes. Uh, I'll just stop and realize this day's been full of busyness and I didn't stop and just have that moment when I just magnify him and nothing else matters and everything else can wait. We all do it. Look at your neighbor and say, guilty. We do we don't pursue it because we're distracted. And so for us, it's okay where it is. This is the way Saul was treating the presence of God. It's okay where it's at. It's not in danger. It's okay. But it wasn't in its proper place. And we, like King Saul, are too busy. We're too busy being king. I'll get to, to it someday, but right now, there are pressing issues. Saul was anointed king, but David was anointed king and priest. Why? Because a shepherd boy tending the flocks of Israel made worshiping God his number one priority. King Saul got into trouble by trying to put himself into a priestly position when he was only anointed king because he didn't have a heart or a passion for the ark. He didn't have a heart or a passion for the things of God. And when he got ahead of God's plan and got impatient, not waiting on the priest to come and carry out the acts of ministry, he got himself in a world of hurt and lost the kingdom because he put himself in a place he had no passion for. Is this all right? So, David was anointed, though, king and priest, because it all started in his heart. Listen, reverence for God always starts in your heart. Passion for God starts down deep inside. That thing in you that says God's more important than anything else in my schedule today. I love the fact that when David went after the presence, he danced. 
He played music. He sacrificed. I can't imagine what he looked like when he got back to Jerusalem. A bloody mess dancing through the streets. It's no wonder McCall found him disgusting. Yet at the same time, if she'd have saw the passion of his heart and understood the passion of his heart, had she not been raised in a home where there was no passion for God, she would have understood her husband dancing in the street. She wouldn't have just understood it. She'd have gotten the street and she'd have danced with him and she'd have shouted with him and she'd have got those maids that she was so worried about involved with the worship that they were doing and they would be shouting and championing the cause of David bringing the presence of God back into the city. Golly, I felt every inch of that. So what separated David from Saul? Why? Saul lost the kingdom because he tried to make himself a priest, and he was in a hurry to make a name for himself. He was in battle, and he wanted to win the battle, and he wanted to make that king pay. And then he disobeyed God on how the battle should be fought and how things should be handled. And while he was making sport of that king, God came and took the kingdom away from him. Mm. He was only anointed king, I've already said this, because there was no urgency in his heart for the presence of God. But David had a desire for God's presence from his youth as a shepherd. His days were filled with praise. Now Saul was fallen and David had endured the necessity of an enemy because the last time I preached about David, he was taken out Goliath. In between there, Saul lost the kingdom and the anointing of God and spirits, evil spirits, came to torment him and torment him over what he lost, but he hadn't yet abdicated his rule to the throne. And David, being a man of honor, would not put his hand against the king. He waited for the timing of God. One of the most difficult things in ministry that I've ever met for anyone who knows they have a calling of God upon their life is to wait for God. God's moment not to try to push into it. Saul, Saul got in trouble trying to push into God's moment. Don't push into God's moment. Wait upon God because when God opens the door, no man can shut the door before you. Mm. <laughs> so now Saul was fallen. David had endured the necessity of an enemy. You know, under the, the, uh, tyranny of Saul, he tried to hunt David down like a dog. This man who once he championed, now he tried to javelin to death and then chase him down with armies. And David was forced to become a mighty man out in the desert. David was forced to find a ragtag bunch of people who the world and society would have thought were down and outers and turn them into a mighty fighting machine. Yet, in all of that, he had the power to subdue nations and to subdue uh, subversants, but he would not put his hand against Saul because of the loyalty of the office that Saul held and his respect for both Saul and God. Mm. But now he's endured it. He remained faithful to the king's authority, and now he's proven and been proven that he's not only a king, he's a king and a priest. And his first act as king is to go after God's presence. 
Oh, God, give us a leader in America today who will put God first and go after the presence of God, who will see the importance. Father, remove the Saul spirit from the judicial halls of America and bring a David spirit back into America again, that we will dance in the streets and magnify our God in a, in a, in a fashion that the world might find shameless, but we're willing to go the extra mile to make sure that our God knows that he is first and foremost in our heart. Mm. His first act as king is to go in after God's presence because he wants his nation blessed. The nation that puts God, the God, the one and only God first, that nation will be blessed. There are those who want to line their pockets and they want to be blessed, but they're following the God of this world. They're following the little G-O-D, not the big G-O-D. They're following a pseudo-God, a fallen spirit, a fallen, maniacal, murderous maniac, but they're lining up with him because they can get their hands on tangible things in this life. But God said, where a man's heart is, there also shall his treasure be. And those who are trying to lay up treasure here, they still drop in the grave without one dime going with them. But those of us who've made Christ the number one of our life, we translate out of here into the opulence of a city that's built by hands that we did not build. We get the place of streets of gold and mansions and pearls. God has promised us an opulent life. All we have to do is remain faithful for the, the brief uh, puff of time that we have here. Man. Golly, I'm having fun. You all look like you're not. He wants his nation blessed. He wants Israel to be great among the nations. The greatest nation on earth always put our worship for the one and only God first. Now, there's others. I understand if you're from another nation and you're listening to this, you might find this statement arguable. But you can be wrong. It's okay. I'm just being honorary. But the nations that put God first are always the blessed nations. Always. They'll arise every time. But those who dabble and play and mock and malign and take away from and downplay, they always end up in some kind of a tyrannical mess with a dictator at the top oppressing the people while he lines his closets with your hard work. Is that too much to say? Am I going to get in trouble and favor? And he is addicted to the feeling of God's empowerment being close at hand. There's nothing like walking with the power and the presence of the Holy Ghost. And once you've laid hands on somebody and seen that transferable anointing change someone else's life, you're addicted. It's, not, it's the only addiction that I have in my life or had in my life ever that wasn't unhealthy. Because that addiction is never about me. It's about who God wants to touch. 
That's the most beautiful addiction is that it's about helping you. It's about helping someone else. It's about helping my neighbor. It's not about what can I garner for myself. Mm. So he goes after the ark. Now look at his mentality. He takes 30,000 men with him. He's expecting a battle. Anytime you go after God, just expect a battle. Go prepared. Get ready. He is serious and prepared for battle, but David made a mistake. He wants God so bad he can't taste it, but he follows the pattern of the Philistines, not the pattern of the priest. And the oxen stumbles. And we've already said this, but I'll reiterate it. Life is full of potholes. Unexpected, un unanticipated bumps in the road to our destiny. And when the ark bobbled, Uzzah, just out of sheer desire not to see this thing fall and get broke or hurt or damaged in any way, he reaches out and tries to steady the ark. Can I just tell you something? Because often this seems cruel to us. He dropped dead. Well, understand we're not under grace yet. Understand that. And when he reached out and he touched it to us, it seems so cruel. But here's the reason why. God doesn't need a man's help. <laughs> you think God couldn't repair the ark if something happened to it? God doesn't need your help. He's got this. He's God. Mm -hmm. That makes me want to shout right there. So listen to me, Passion Church and young ministers. No matter our anointing, we must be careful how we handle God's presence because it can be deadly to someone if we misrepresent God's intention. Huh? If we misrepresent God by trying to help him with human effort. Is that too much? Am I messing you up? You all got so sober, so serious. A while ago, you were shouting. How we represent the word matters. This is the word. This is the word. And how we represent this word to somebody, this is why the Bible says to study to show yourself approved. you got to know what you're talking about because you can really cause someone to get on a deadly journey if you misrepresent this word, if you make doctrines that really aren't in here. It's really easy to do. If we don't keep the word in context, you can easily create a doctrine that hurts somebody else. Or oftentimes, and, and I'm not criticizing this because I, I like book studies, but sometimes we can take a book study and we'll go through the book study and we'll get men's ideas attached with God's ideas. And we've got to be so careful with that because we can cause damage in someone's life. I, I can feel, move on, Pastor. How we represent his name, how we represent his mission, 
And in his will and his intent matters because our misappropriation of Christ can cause someone to lose out with God eternally. I'm bringing this down to modern day. <laughs> I've watched young anointed men become enamored with their abilities, their talents, their giftedness, their position, their purpose, and put themselves in danger of believing their own press release. Huh? Huh? I'm going to share with you just real quickly. If you was to get my press release, well, in 1977 and 78, I was listed among the who's who of American high school students. All that meant was I had a teacher like me and voted for me. If you looked at my academics, you'd go, that boy plumb dumb. And then through life, I just kept stacking these little accolades, you know. Why? By the age of 17, I was traveling in ministry around the, this nation and singing the gospel of Christ while souls would flood to the altar and the power of God would be displayed. All it was was I was a 17-year-old who didn't really know much but Jesus, and I had some really good managers in the group that kept me in line because I was always messing stuff up. And then I worked in radio, wow, every day, either in the morning or in the midday or in the drive home, you would hear the voice of the boomerang man. The reason I used boomerang man is because I'd been there three or four times. Every time I'd leave, I'd just boomerang right back to that job. And I got voted DJ of the year. And they flew me to Nashville, Tennessee, and I stayed in a $250 a night hotel room. And wow, it was something. And I sat in the sanctuary that day in the side room of the great Coliseum there in Nashville, Tennessee, with my wife beside me, feeling the importance of the hour when the record company came forward. And as I sat there in great anticipation, ready to take home the award for the greatest DJ that Kansas City had ever known, they announced another guy's name. You get the idea. Things can sound good on paper, but the reality is, is we're just people in need of an awesome God. Huh? Come on. Now, let me, let me give you this, and I got to move on because the worship team has only got about 40 minutes left, so I'll fly. I'm going to fly right here so they can finish. Let me, let me, let me just say this. I watched young men to their own detriment, believe their press, get too self-important, too self-absorbed, and end up causing more damage to the body of Christ than good. I've even seen it end in death. One of the most rising stars in the gospel was a young man, I won't, I won't give his name, young African-American man, could preach. I mean, he could preach the paint off the wall. This man was talented. He had more talent in his little finger. I just sat and marvel at him. He had two churches, and they were far enough apart 
in order for him to make service times, he would helicopter from one church to the other. Drove through, drove through his state in a Jaguar. And that was his wife's secondary car. He was an up-and-comer, and things were happening, and things were shaking, and he, was, he truly was a powerful gift to the body. But because he began to believe his own press, he died in a hotel room of cocaine overdose. Is that right? Is that correct? Was it cocaine? Heroin? I don't know which, but what, whichever one it was, it killed him. They found him. He was scheduled to preach that next few hours. They found him dead in a hotel room. So let me say this real gently, real tenderly to my young ministers. You ain't all that. He's all that. You ain't all that. He is all that. So David learns a costly lesson. Handle God's presence right. How do you do that? You humble yourself in his presence. You learn of his word and make yourself a student of his word so that you know how to rightly divide and handle his presence so that somebody else can receive his presence from you and it be a life-building thing, not a life-destroying thing. We don't need any Perez Uza moments in our life, in our walk. Who can say amen? So, David learns that costly lesson, how to handle God's presence, right? And after a three-month sabbatical, he says, how can I, in verse 9, how can I go get God's presence for me and for Israel? How can God's presence come to me? He becomes a student, and he learns what he needs to learn out of the Word of God, how to handle the presence of God. And when he shows up at Obed-Edom's house, uh, this time uh, he brings along he brings along the priesthood. And this time he doesn't approach the ark as a king. He approaches the ark as a worshiper. He approaches the ark not from his kingly stance, but from his priestly stance. The Bible calls you and me kings and priests after the order of David. We're not after the order of Saul. We're after the order of David. And there are times when my kingly position must take back seat to my priestly one because I'm not all that and he is all of that. How can two pages of notes take so long? This time David comes with the worship team, the priest, and, an, and it, everything is over-the-top sacrifice to prove his desire to be right in God's sight. I doubt that he had to sacrifice every seven steps, but he did it. Because he wanted God to know, you're more important to me, and handling your presence right is more important to me than me saving face. So six steps and kill another calf. Kill another sheep. 
Sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. He let God know you're worthy of everything I've got to give. If I have to bankrupt the kingdom, I'll bankrupt the kingdom to get your presence where it needs to be so that the people can taste and understand and have the same heart that I have and how blessed it is to be in the presence of God. Of the worship team would make your way to your place. This time, David comes with the worship team, and he dances in worship in the streets, dressed in an ephod, the garment of a priest, not a king. He laid aside his kingly robe to show God and the onlookers that God is first in Israel and the king's life. Under this king, the nation will serve God. He established that day, this day, we will, as a nation, serve God from the king to the lowliest servant. God will be established in Israel. I already said this, but Revelation 1.6, John declares that God has made us all to be like David. And through the order to establish, be established by a covenant with David's star that would fly over Israel God's kingdom and his desire and intention forever. And we, the adopted children, are no different than the natural children. God has declared us, Jesus declared us, king and priest. But the presence of that ark is king. Jesus. We, if we are wise in serving as king in our kingdom domain, we will strip ourselves of our kingly attire and we will humble ourselves in his presence. We will give him our desire, our talents, our giftings, and our anointing and we'll pursue God's presence as a priest. We will be as undignified as we can be before the onlookers. We will be lost in his presence in hot pursuit of his desire and design for us in his mission. mission. And we will make that our lifelong calling for the world to know there is a God. There is a God. There is God and he is worthy of my all I don't know where you are today I'm not here to put you on the spot but I'm going to ask you right now to survey in your heart where are you is God a secondary thought in your life or is he first and foremost are you the king of your domain or is God the king of your domain are you willing to take off your kingly garments and allow Christ to be the king of your life and you just become a worshiping priest? The word says that when we get to heaven and we receive the crown of life, we're going to lay it at the feet of Jesus. Only those who are humble enough to humble yourself here would be humble enough to remove that crown there. God wants your crown. Why? Because if you'll give him your, your crown, 
you're giving him your heart. And that's all he wants is you. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for your word today. With an uplifted hand, you say, that touched me, Pastor. It touched me today, and I want to know that I'm in the right position with Christ. I want to make sure my life is headed in the right direction. I'm not afraid to hold my hand up and say, I want to take off my kingly robes today. Thank you for that hand. I want to take off my kingly robes. Thank you. I want. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I want to make sure that I'm living right. Thank you. I want to make sure that I give him thank you, thank you, thank you. I want to make sure that he has it all. I don't want any of his glory. I don't want to reach out and touch his glory because I don't deserve to touch his glory and he doesn't need my help. All I want to do is give him the glory that is due him by getting out of the way. Father, I thank you for these hands that have been raised. I ask, Father, right now that you'll grant to every heart, every life, Father, that desire to get out of the way. Put on a priestly robe and become as undignified as we can be in the presence of God before the world so that they would know there is a God who's in charge. We give you the honor, the glory, and the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.